And if you would turn with me to Daniel chapter 7, uh, today's sermon will focus on just verses 13 through 14, but it's, it's important to set the stage for those verses. So I'm, I'm going to start reading from verse 1, uh, even though we did verses 1 through 12 the last time. Uh, it's all one vision, and so you can't really finish it without getting the context from the first part of the vision. All right, Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And now the next two verses are the focus of the sermon. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. So we set the scene once again just for context. For Daniel sees this vision at the beginning of Belshazzar's reign, which means that he's already experienced God's hand at work during Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Daniel has seen 
how God has worked to humble a pagan king and bring him, you know, we debate to what degree Nebuchadnezzar really had saving faith, um, but still God was able to humble this pagan king and cause him to glorify the true God of heaven. But as Daniel sees this vision at the beginning of Belshazzar's reign, he may not know it, but he's about to enter a long dry spell. Because the next time Daniel is called into action is on the very last day of Belshazzar's reign. And during that, those intervening years, all Daniel gets to do is count beans and watch his influence fall. And so God is showing Daniel this vision at the beginning of this dry period. So Daniel knows that God is still at work, that God is still bringing about history toward his intended conclusion, even during times when his work in the world is less evident. And so God shows Daniel the world's powers as these terrifying beasts uh, they defy description by, by animals from, from the natural world. They can only be described as these disgusting mashups of different, of different animals that God created good. They, they, they don't even come from creation. And in the end, the great beast is killed and the other beasts are subdued. But suppose that's all we get. Suppose the vision just ends right there at verse 12. Uh, all that we're left with is a ruined world and the ruin of the beasts on top of that ruined world. Uh, not exactly the happy ending that we're looking for. That's, I always thought it was really brilliant, you know, at the end of The Lord of the Rings, how J.R.R. Tolkien gives us an opportunity to see to see the world set right, to see the Shire even set right as uh, the Hobbit band goes back and they're called upon to help defend the Shire and, and make everything right. It's good to see that things turn out right. Um, similarly, my favorite video game from my youth, when you, when you beat the final boss, the credits don't just roll you actually get to walk around the world and talk to all the people that you've met along the way uh, while happy music is playing instead of the intense battle music. Because we don't just want an end to evil. We want a restoration to what's good. And so that's why we need what comes next in Daniel's vision. Because, yeah, we face real enemies in this world, and we need to know that God will put a stop to them. We see that happening in verses 11 and 12, but, but we need more. We need to know that there is something good coming to replace all this. And so the message to Daniel and to you is really clear. Don't get comfortable in this worldly kingdom. But don't be afraid of it either, because God is going to bring a completely different heavenly kingdom into the world, and this is the kingdom that you're waiting for. 
And we see in these couple of verses, we see the contrast between the world's kingdom and the heavenly kingdom in two particular areas. We see the difference of the king in his divine and human nature. And we see the difference of the heavenly kingdom in its glory and universality and eternity. And so this first contrast that we see is in the nature of the king. For down on the earth, the kings are portrayed as, as beasts. Uh, it's, it's crazy. It's carnage. Um, it, you've never seen anything like this, in, even in a movie. But up here in heaven, where Daniel is watching, a new king is crowned. And, and this picture uh, of, of calm in the heavenly court, it, it's, it's insanity down below. But up above, we see in verses 9 and 10, thrones are placed, the Ancient of Days takes his seat, takes his seat as if the work is already done. Not even standing for action or to, to roll up his sleeves and get to work. Just calm up above. And then here in verses 13 and 14, we see the approach of the new king awaiting his coronation. And we see that this king has both divine and human attributes. For first, his divine nature, it says that he comes with the clouds of heaven. And this is a, a clearer biblical marker of the divinity of this figure. For it says, for example, in Psalm 104, that God makes the clouds his chariot. In Isaiah 19, it says that the Lord is riding on a swift cloud. And this theme is picked up later in the New Testament. In Revelation 14, it says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, who then reaps a harvest of those who have faith in Christ. So this new king, even, we would say, comes in the form of God himself, a second figure to join the Ancient of Days with all the attributes and all the being of divinity in him. But this king isn't only divine. He's very human as well, for it says he is like a son of man. He comes in the form of a human, and, and this really shows the contrast between, between this figure above and the beast below. For, yeah, the kings below are portrayed as, as beasts. Even, even the first beast never is made like a man. He, he stands on two feet and, and is given the mind of a man, but he's not fully transformed into, into a man. But here, God's chosen king appears as a man appears as a king who is just as kings ought to be. And so this indicates that he will rule by wisdom, not by animal instinct, that he will rule with compassion, not terror, that he will rule in, in wholeness and in health, not by carnage, for he isn't just any man. He's a man who rules the way humanity was meant to rule. 
And so we have this figure of the new king, the heavenly king, divine and human. And we're all looking for a king, aren't we? What does it mean to have a king? It means protection. You have someone powerful to defend you. It means belonging. You're a citizen. You have compatriots to be with you. I mean, even even these days, most people still have some level of love for their country and their countrymen. It may mean prestige and honor to be a citizen of this kingdom. And yet, we all know that our kings here on this earth fall short. Scandals embarrass a nation, make us look like fools for sticking up for public figures. Laws, policies, and plans made to bring out prosperity and equity turn out to have unexpected bad consequences or even in the end, divert money to the well-heeled. But here God shows Daniel that there's another king on the way. This one riding on the clouds, one like a son of man. And as you may know, Jesus' favorite title for himself in the Gospel of Matthew is what? Son of man. So Jesus is referring to himself as this divine human king that appears here in Daniel 7. And how gloriously different he is from the kings of the earth. For Jesus is a king who's kind. Think of the way he meets little Zacchaeus, the despised tax collector, the short little man who who climbs into a tree just to get a glimpse of the Messiah. Zacchaeus, a man whose only friends were people he could buy off. But Jesus walks to the foot of that tree and he says, Zacchaeus, I have to come to your place for dinner tonight. And Jesus shows himself a friend to a man who had none. Jesus is a king who has compassion. Remember when Jesus was ministering in Galilee, He finds that the people are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You've probably heard of the obedience and learning of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but you know what? These groups were maybe 5% of the population. Almost all the Jewish people in Jesus' time were just ordinary people, trying to make a living, trying to be faithful to God. And the Pharisees may have enjoyed popular support, but they weren't known for lifting a finger to help people get to God. And so Jesus has compassion on these people. The word for them is am ha'aretz, the people of the land. The people who needed a shepherd and who had none. And so Jesus didn't go to them and blame them for their lack of learning. But he had compassion on them and he wanted them to know the message of the gospel. It hurt him to know that they were lost and so spiritually needy and he provides for them for as he sees them and has compassion on them, he tells his, he tells his disciples that the field is ripe 
is white as for harvest. So pray that God would send workers for the harvest to teach these people the message of the gospel. Jesus is a king who's wise. He never gets bamboozled in the course of his ministry. The Pharisees try to get him in trouble, right, by asking him a question about taxation. Uh, Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he sees through their plot. He sees that their question isn't sincere, and he gives them an answer that bamboozles them instead. He simply says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. But most of all, Jesus is a king who gives himself for his people. He suffered greatly for the sake of his ministry. He he went into the desert for 40 days without food. He continues preaching the message of the gospel, even as his popularity wanes. And in the end, he pays the price of his life. On that cross, he suffered the death that you deserve for your sins so you can live with him if you trust in him. Jesus demands nothing from you, but gives everything to you out of his love for you. And so think about everything that you want to have as king in your life. And don't think necessarily about a person, a human being. Think about what that king represents. Protection, belonging, pride. You know, I read the comment sections on YouTube videos or Instagram, and I'm always just amazed at how people will go to bat for whatever musician or sports star or company defending these public figures against their haters. I've, I've done it myself. I, I imagine that most of you have done the same thing at one time or another. And sometimes I just want to say, you know, Taylor Swift doesn't know who you are and wouldn't have time to look out for you even if she did. Fill in anything, of course, for Taylor Swift. Think about the people or companies or philosophies or even your idea of the good life that you want to give your loyalty to. What do they give you? What do they really give you beyond an economic transaction? A a gadget to show you pretty pictures and videos? A smug sense of superiority? Do they really give you anything that lasts? Anything of value? Do they give you as much as you give to them? And will they be there for you forever? Why would you give your loyalty to something, to someone that gives you so little? But Jesus, he gave everything for you so that you could have everything, so you could have eternal life, so you could have the Holy Spirit, to have perfect spiritual, physical, relational health in the life to come. All these other things, they 
They might make life a little more pleasant, a little more fun, but they can't give you ultimate meaning or eternal life. But Jesus does. He did it by giving himself in sacrifice to you. How different is that from anything else you may cons- that you may look to as your king? And this act of sacrifice is the very thing that makes Jesus fit to be king. So think about this. Think about the tabernacle that Moses makes for God. It's filled with, with golden furniture inside, a golden table, a golden lampstand, golden incense altar, divided into two rooms, the holy place and the most holy place, which itself has uh, has the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the footstool of God's throne, surrounded by towering statues of angels. It's God's dwelling place on earth. And, and so picture this magnificent, uh, this magnificent room filled with this magnificent furniture. And, and the writer to the Hebrews tells us that this earthly throne room is only a copy, only a shadow of the true throne room in heaven above. The throne room that Daniel sees here in today's text. And how did Jesus enter into this heavenly place? Hebrews 9 tells us that it was by his blood. Jesus enters into the heavenly holy place and and I believe that Daniel is seeing a vision of this ceremony taking place. Now, the Hebrews passage is focusing on Jesus' priesthood, and Daniel is seeing his coronation as king. But in both cases, consider that it, just as it's only after giving his blood that Jesus is anointed as priest in the heavenly holy place, consider that It's only after his death and resurrection that he tells his disciples what? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me and is seen ascending to heaven. Or it says in Ephesians that only after being raised from the dead that Christ was seated at God's right hand and given authority over all things. So it's by his death on behalf of his people that Jesus proved himself and qualified himself to be the king that we need. And so that's the portrait of the king. The true king that we're all looking for. But a king needs a kingdom. And he wants you to be his citizen. So in verse 14, we see the focus turned to the nature of this kingdom. And we see especially its universality, its eternity, and its glory. For first, this kingdom is universal. It says, all peoples, nations, and languages will serve him. It it reminds you, doesn't it, of, of kings like Nebuchadnezzar or Alexander the Great, who 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 claimed to have been king over the whole earth. But even the way that this king, this heavenly king, attains his universality is different. First of all, it's truly universal. 
There are people from every tribe, every nation, every language. Uh, People that Daniel wasn't even aware of. But also, these other kings of the earth gained their vast kingdoms by what? By conquering. By warfare. By taking human life. How different it is with Jesus. For he gained this universal kingdom by giving his own life. And as we, his disciples, spread his kingdom, grow his kingdom, we don't do it by conquest. But what does Jesus say in the Great Commission? His kingdom grows by by going, by baptizing, by teaching, by making disciples. And in return, the citizens of Jesus' kingdom serve him. Not the service of slavery or forced labor. For the Aramaic word here that we translate serve is referring to divine worship. It's service in the same sense that right now we are in a church service. A service of thanksgiving. A service of obedience. Thanksgiving for giving us life in his kingdom and obedience as, as a joyful following of Christ and showing our love to him. Second, this kingdom is eternal. It'll never pass away on its own, and no enemy can possibly come against this kingdom and destroy it. You know, we're all looking for things that will last. Daniel served kings and kingdoms that expected to be around forever. They had no exit plan. Um, they, they, they had no concept that they wouldn't be here until the end of time. And, and the kings and citizens of the Babylonian and Assyrian empires gained benefits from being part of these great empires. And, and they didn't have a plan B. And, and none of us really think about that today either. You know, one day, the United States is going to be no more just like so many nations and empires before it. Now, there may still be a country called the United States, but its prestige and status among the nations can't last forever. You look at ancient Egypt, you look at the Roman Empire, long-lived kingdoms and empires that, that fell, that don't enjoy the status and influence they ever did. Egypt certainly isn't what it was. The Roman Empire no longer is at all. Think about the USSR. I, I, was, I was barely old enough to be aware of the Berlin falling, but nobody thought that this could happen. Not that the USSR lasted as long as, as these other kingdoms and empires, but it certainly looked like it could stick around forever, didn't it? And yet it's a shadow of its former self. All these great nations never planned for a day when they would fall, but fall they did. But Jesus' kingdom endures forever. It's a kingdom already that's endured for 2,000 years. You know, the light of the gospel has never been snuffed out. People have tried, but it can't be done. And the church still shows no sign of ever being destroyed. Not in this world. And then Christ will come 
in glory in his return to judge his enemies, to raise his people up to glorious everlasting life with him. An eternal kingdom that can never be destroyed. And third, we see the glory of this kingdom. Think about what John saw in Revelation in his vision of the holy city, beautiful as a bride on her wedding day. A city with 12 gates, each gate carved out of a single pearl, with a wall like crystal and a city of pure gold, the clear river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and finally the tree of life, once again made available to God's people. A tree so remarkable, it it doesn't yield one kind of fruit. It yields 12 kinds of fruit. Even the blue ribbon winning trees at the state fair don't yield 12 kinds of fruit. And, and a tree whose leaves heal the nations. And then nothing compares to the glory of the king himself Glory is such a difficult concept for us to get our heads around, but there are a few concepts that help. You might know that the Semitic words behind our English glory refer to weightiness. So God's glory means he's so weighty than the most important, the greatest thing you can think of. Or sometimes God's glory appears as a bright, radiant light, like when Jesus was transfigured before his disciples. You can think of glory as value, something more precious than the rarest and greatest jewel. And of course, glory refers to beauty, more beautiful than the night sky, any flower you can think of or anything else. Weightiness, brightness, value, and beauty. All of these things are brought to their apex, to their perfection in Jesus' kingdom. So where does that leave us now? Remember, Daniel was about to enter a really rough patch in his service in the empire. Both by worldly standards, he would lose in his influence, and at least by human sight, in the kingdom of God, he would have few opportunities to proclaim the glory of God. But God gives him hope to carry on because God shows Daniel that he is working for a different kingdom and for a different king. Daniel is working for a king far more worthy and a kingdom far more glorious than any king or kingdom in this world. And it's true for you too. You don't need to be devoted to anything or anybody in this world the way that the world wants you to be. You need to be devoted to your King Jesus and to his kingdom. You can still live well in this life. You can serve well in the world around you. You can be a blessing wherever you are as a citizen of this heavenly kingdom. In John Calvin's introduction to the Institutes of the Christian Religion, he writes to the King of France saying, 
I summarize, stop persecuting Protestants. I'm going to show you in this little book that we're the best citizens that you have. And it's just as true in our day as it was in the 1500s. The world will ask you to dedicate yourself to its kings and kingdoms. The world might try to force you to do it. But you belong to a different king and a different kingdom. You belong to heavenly, eternal king. When you give all to King Jesus for the sake of his kingdom, he will give you strength and wisdom to live well in this world. He'll give you opportunity to make a difference in your little piece of this world. Just as he gave strength and wisdom to Daniel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have made us citizens of the heavenly kingdom by the blood of Jesus. Father, we pray that you will fill us with wisdom. Teach us how we ought to walk. But keep our eyes fixed on heaven above. And teach us to look forward to the day when all things are made new, when he returns in glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.